Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Brusler, Leadership Under Fire's founder. The conversation you're about to hear features longtime LUF contributor Brian McNulty and was recently delivered as an online presentation to leaders enrolled in the online LUF Optimizing Tactical Performance Under Pressure course. Brian joined the ranks of the Milwaukee Fire Department in 1999 and was one of the department's first rescue company commanders and a plank owner of Rescue Company 2. Brian is a very seasoned and no-nonsense fire officer who has proactively used an enhanced understanding of human performance to refine how he trains and develops rescue company firefighters and leads at fires and emergencies, a perspective that is at the core of the following conversation. Though Brian's leadership and performance philosophy is oriented to a heavy rescue company and an urban fire department, many of the principles have application to any small unit. Brian's 11-year tenure as Rescue 2's company commander ended recently. After much deliberation, Brian elected to turn the company over to a new captain and assume greater responsibility as a battalion chief. The LUF team would like to commend Brian for the success that he and his members have achieved in building Rescue 2. We wish Brian continued success as a chief officer and are confident that he will continue to be a trusted leader under pressure in the Milwaukee Fire Department. Appreciate you guys taking the time tonight. Over about the next hour and a half, I'm just going to talk about rescue company performance, you know, from the human perspective and kind of talk about selection process, crew development, training. So a little bit about myself. I've been with the Milwaukee Fire Department for 24 years now. I'm just started my 25th. For the last 11 and a half years, I've been at Rescue Company 2 as the captain. I've held all the ranks. I was a fireman. Uh, I was a driver for two years, a lieutenant for two, uh, now a captain for about 14 the rescue company, uh, Milwaukee, ran just engines and trucks up until 2012. So I am the first uh, captain of Rescue 2, up to date, it's only captain. And, you know, like, what does that mean to you guys or what does it mean to me? It's given me this really unique opportunity, not only to start a company, but then to have a consistent consistency for the last 11 and a half years with a lot of the same members and then have an influx of new members to try things, to fail at things, uh, to refine things as far as crew development and company selection uh, and just overall performance. Starting a new company kind of gave me this a unique opportunity, myself and the other 30 members that were there originally, to kind of navigate what the company was going to look like and how the company, where we were going to kind of fall in the pecking order. Um, we were kind of out given a rough outline of what rescue companies were going to be responsible for. But to the department's credit, they kind of left it at our doorstep on kind of how to develop that exactly. So uh, a rescue company responds to every working fire, every auto extrication, every technical rescue uh, incident in the city. Um, so luckily, the fellows see a fair amount of work. Um, that's where it's kind of given me. Um, when we started, we were pretty green. The rescues were born as kind of a, the next step from our technical rescue team. And our technical rescue team at the time didn't consist of the most senior firemen on the job. And I guess if we would have had our druthers, we would have selected from the busiest trucks, the busiest engines, the most senior guys on the job to start up the rescue company. 
but you had to be technical rescue certified. So that limited our pool so that we ended up with some very good officers and some very good senior men. Um, we filled out the balance of the rescue with some pretty inexperienced people. And in those first days of, you know, those first year, two years, three years, um, I had a lot of sleepless nights because there were a lot of eyes on us for performance. I wouldn't say that we were received with open arms by the department. Some people didn't see the need to have a rescue company. So I had a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of that was based off of, you know, are the guys going to perform up to a level that shines or reflects well on the company? And one of the things that I had to realize early on is that we were never going to apologize for our lack of experience because that's something the guys can't control. I mean, they can control it by selecting busy, to work in busy companies, but basically experience has to come with time. So we weren't gonna apologize about that and I had to stop worrying about that. What I did worry about from the experience point of view is that we were making the most out of any experience we went to. And I thought that was something that we, did, we could control and that was dependent on us and we had to be purposeful about that development. And then secondly, that we were training sufficiently and created an environment where in lieu of that experience that we kind of sped up the clock to get these people ready you know, ready to work on a rescue company and ready to be in the spot that we wanted to be as a rescue. So hopefully tonight, we'll kind of unpack some of that 11 and a half years, get feedback from you folks where you guys are in your career, or what you think is advantageous when it comes to crew development, uh, and leave this conversation all better than when we arrived. We'll start here. So a little bit about recruitment, selection and training at any given time. So the rescue company is paired with an engine company, engine company 24. And all those people are on the technical rescue team. All but one member from the engine is qualified to ride the rescue. Um, and that one spot is a training spot that we will always have a new member, new member in. So the original 30, when we started, we had seven members that all had two years on the job. Uh, they all came from the same class, but we kind of got over that hurdle by having, uh, like I said, the senior, a really good officer core a really good driver core and a really good senior man core. Currently, so we run five on the rescue and four on the engine. And like I said, that fourth spot on the engine is that training spot. And we, when we started out, we ran them in one year increments. So we would recruit a guy, he would come over to the engine, he would get a year worth of training. Um, he would be assigned to a shift. At the end of that year, we would rotate them back out to the field and we would bring in another trainee member. We did that for about two years and we decided that that process kind of penalized the guy. After that year, you're just kind of getting your feet wet. There's so much more to learn. So now what we do is we hold that, that guy comes in in that training spot. He gets that year on it under his belt. He's able to slide the floor and ride the rescue uh, when there's a vacancy, but we don't kick him out. And so the training spot is full and it stays full until someone else leaves the company. So if we leave, lose a promotion, lose a fireman to retirement, uh, promotion, uh, for any reason, they just decide to move on, then that training spot opens back up. And that system has worked a little bit better for us. We don't really go out and recruit like actively. We do send out a notice when we're like kind of at the point of like, hey, we're going to start a class. But our recruitment really consists of when we're heavy on the engine or on the rescue, um, that firefighter will go out into what we call general population. So they'll work somewhere else in the battalion. 
And it really just ends up being word of mouth. They'll come back and they'll say, Hey cap, you know, did you, you know, this new kid over at thirties, uh, I worked with him. He had a great attitude, great work ethic. Now we kind of write, write a little note. We have a board where we keep a list of names, you know, we'll go to actual emergencies. We'll be in the battalion. We'll see guys working. So we get a good glimpse at them. And then if you guys, did anybody listen to the Liam podcast? So he talked about that 360 peer review. And really it's that, you know, a guy comes into the company interviews with the captain, you know, you can sell yourself pretty well, but really you can't hide from your peers. So Liam calls their peers and says, Hey, you know, what do you think about uh, Joe? And if they're like, Oh, you know, Joe's a, yeah, he's all right guy. You know, it's kind of like the kiss of death. Right. But if you call and go, Hey, what do you think about Joe? And they're like, Oh dude, Joe is, you should have Joe as part of your team. He's going to be a value add. Right. So that's 360 peer review is something that we definitely use. The great part about the Milwaukee fire department. And one of the great parts is that we're big enough, but we're actually, we're also small enough. So that like any one of those guys in that picture there, I knew a lot before they showed up at the company, right? So we, you know, we cover about two thirds of the city with the rescue. I went to fires with those guys before I knew their bosses. I knew their senior men, other firefighters in the company knew their officers. So we knew a lot of information about those guys before they showed up. The other benefit when we bring them into that training spot. So when, we do, when we're looking, every year we try to run a new technical rescue class. So we try to run 12 new members through. Those members just come from the field in general. So we'll try to, we'll recruit 12 people. We'll send them through a technical rescue class. Then out of that 12, we'll fill our training spots. When they come to the training spot, there's an understanding that that spot is theirs to lose. So they come into that spot. They have that spot for, I mean, it, we've kicked a couple of people out short of a year but they're in that spot. The nice part is, is it's one thing to see a guy at training for, you know, three weeks when they're going through the technical rescue training. It's another thing and very advantageous to see how that member is in the firehouse on that daily, that day-to-day basis, what their work ethic looks like, how they're going to assimilate to the crew, how they are at actual emergencies. You know, are they the guy who's checking out the rig? Are they detail orientated? All those things. And that year really gives us a much better lens to view them in to make that selection at the end of the year. You know, I say to them when they come in that every day they're going to get some sort of training from us. And a lot of times that training is either going to be led by the senior man, one of the lieutenants or myself. That's going to happen. But the expectation is that if there's something they're struggling with, the expectation is that they're going to take that upon themselves. Or if we don't have a training scheduled for that day, which is rare, that they would pick up the ball and they would go and find something and better themselves at it. What we're really looking for there is that ability, are they a self-starter? And I think if you guys look at what you would value in anybody that would come to your company, you know, I'm sure character, work ethic, all those things, uh, that self-starter. Uh, I just heard a term lately or recently it was called, uh, during a podcast, they called the term was spotlight ranger. And it was basically somebody who only works when their boss is around. And that's quickly identified if a spotlight ranger shows up at the house um, because you just can't hide when you're there, you know, every third day for a year. So that process has worked out really well for us. Over the last 11 and a half years, I think I've asked three people to leave. Um, and it's almost always because they just, they don't want to self-initiate. And if they can't self-initiate in their first year when they're probably under the biggest lens, 
I doubt that they're going to turn it on after that year is over. Um, so that process has really worked out well for us. Things to consider during the process. So probably things that have rattled through my head, but have probably been worded a little bit better by friends of mine or other things I've read is that they, one of the ideal candidate probably possesses a curiosity that they would want to know the why and are willing to risk it, risk that for personal growth. So you think about the fire service in general, we are good at critiquing. Are we good at busting, busting chops? Sometimes are we good to, are we so good at it that we could maybe drive a guy into a shell? In that sense, I've never gone to a firehouse where some sort of behavior like that is going on. And it exists in my firehouse. And I think it's, I think there's benefit to it, but anything that's beneficial, we can take to it. We can take to an extreme, right? And so these members come in and I'm always excited to see a guy who's willing to ask that question in front of a group of, you know, senior people and officers that he maybe doesn't know too well. And they're doing that because they're like, you know what? Even if I'm wrong here, I need to know the answer because I need to get better at my job, right? So, you know, Captain Walker from Rescue One said it nicely, you know, that they want to they know the why and they're willing to take that personal growth. Um, they possess that white belt mentality, you know, that I can keep that white belt mentality that I can learn from anyone at any time, a favorite of Dr. Fader, and then accredited to uh, George St. Pierre here, who I'm not an MMA guy, but I guess is one of the all-time best MMA guys, probably because of that philosophy that with all the success during his career, he just kept thinking was what's next, what's next. Uh, I had a driver for eight years, a guy named Tim Miller, and we had gone to a pretty horrific wreck, uh, car slid under a semi on the freeway and uh, ended up at the duels. We ended up getting the guy out. The operation went all right. Unfortunately, the guy passed away, but we walked away from it. And in our critique, like John said, we knew that there was a better way to do things. And uh, at the time I was teaching a class at FDIC, uh, there were some gentlemen, the Morrises from Rescue One uh, at FDNY, and they ran a class in Connecticut and they were kind enough to invite us out to it. So it was like a year long venture of getting equipment, doing training. Uh, we had some guys from Rescue One come out. Like, I'm not like boo-hooing this, like woe is me, but it was like a year of intense stuff, dealing with my administration, a lot of headaches to go to it. So we finally get this training complete. The stuff is on the rig. Um, you know, obviously we'll have ongoing training and the same guy, Tim Miller shows up at my door and the words out of his mouth are, well, okay, well, what's next cat. And I'm like, Timmy, like you're killing me here. Like, I, like what's next is I want to take a nap in the recliner. Right. But it's that attitude. And here's a guy who had, you know, 30 years on the job at the time. Here's a guy who's like, not only what's next, but I can learn anything. Like there's so much stuff we can learn out there and just having that attitude. Uh, was just tremendous. And when you can have that attitude in the senior guy, you know, for you or those, those of you in the group that are officers, you know, that that's like, like an unbelievable uh, win uh, from Liam, you know, we're looking for character experience that being teachable uh, that they're humble and kind of finding those people through that's 360 peer review. If they're, if you reach out to somebody for a peer review, they're probably, they probably have some of those traits. Attitude then technique. I got the guy named James Goodwin on my crew and uh, he was relatively new to the company. And we went to the, just, we went to this fire that was, it was one of those like overhaul nightmare fires, right? Where it's like the fun part is done. It was just all bulwark. And it was like bulwark for like two hours. And uh, I just remember looking over at him and there was like, there was just never any stop in this guy. 
And I took him back and I said, and he was kind of struggling technically. And I took him back and I had a conversation with him. And I said, you know, Goody, I, I said, I know you're struggling technically, but don't give up because you have every, you possess everything that I need. I guess I can put, push him in that direction. But a lot of times that ability to like downshift into that other gear or push past where you thought your limit was is so inherent to that person, I think. And when I saw that in him, like in like a very black and white uh, presentation, like all the technical stuff, you know, I'll spend hours out on the apparatus floor trying to teach, you know, teaching you to teach to tie bowlins or to tie systems or whatever the rope stuff is, or, to, you know, to tie or to, you know, do a lace post box, whatever it is. But that that's extremely difficult to do. The technical sometimes comes easy. It's that application of the technical and then working through that, like where you thought your limit was and really focusing. So when you see that in somebody, and I think that if people come to us with that open, Hey, I'm an open book. I've got a great attitude. I'll give everything I need. It's easy for us to give it to them in return. Right. Do you guys agree? So, and this comes from, uh, this next list of things comes from, if you haven't heard of it, I think it's worth looking up. It's called the mission critical team Institute. It's uh, Dr. Preston Klein and uh, Coleman Ruiz, uh, who is an ex-Navy SEAL. Uh, they have some really great podcasts and some really interesting information. But they were talking about uh, one of, uh, they reached out to some special operators and what they looked for when they were selecting people. And I thought this was an interesting list. That they understand how to prepare for a task. Um, they have a consistent and disciplined approach to mastering that craft. Display the ability to produce a desired outcome. And they have the capacity for honest self-assessment and AAR. So the AAR would be the more formal, but that that person has that ability to do what John says, and that's to critique not only, you know, our own performance, but to honestly critique that person's performance next to us. And if you have that person, right, we all know that new people, when we bring them into the company, are going to do what? They're going to screw up, right? And if that person screws up, and we've all seen the person who either like doubles down on their screw up or tries to hide it or whatever it is. But if you have that person who will say, Hey, imagine a guy coming knocking on your door and going, Hey, loot. I know I just wasn't the best version of myself there. Help me get to that point. Or if they don't come to you directly, they come to the senior man. Or if they don't come to the senior man that the next day you see them opening the cabinet with the equipment that they struggled with and that they're like actively learning how to better themselves. You know, that's a person we can work with. And I think that um, all of us, I don't care where we are in our career, probably this group, if I raised, if I asked for everybody to raise their hand and said, who's ever, you know, spent time critiquing themselves after an incident, everybody's hand would go up. If I would then ask the question, who's ever critiqued themselves to the point where they thought it was detrimental, probably everybody in this group would then raise their hands again, right? So again, we also have to learn with self-assessment to put it in perspective. And, you know, so I was that guy that would come back from a run and lay in bed and twist and turn about the things that I had done wrong. And one of the things that LUL helped me do was to add a little perspective to it. So I asked myself, is the thing that I'm, you know, kicking the crap out of myself about, was it something that I was able to control in the first place? And I found after asking that, that I was able to get a lot of things off my plate. I still had enough to worry about enough to critique myself about, but definitely to build that skill into young people or people who come with that skill already uh, is value add for us. And I just want to talk a little bit about this after action review process. So in the Milwaukee fire department, 
and you guys can answer this question for yourselves. But in the Milwaukee Fire Department, when if you would say that we're having an after action review, I would probably, and you gave me the option to go to the dentist, I would probably go to the dentist. Like we do a lot of things well on the job, but after action review has a very negative connotation on it, like a formal after action review. And it almost, I could probably say it always means that the operation let, went less than stellar. And it really never gets, we really never get out of the after action what I think we should get out of it. If you have an after, after action properly set up and whether that be at the company level or the department level, and when we do them at the company level, uh, one of the things that uh, Coleman Ruiz talks about is that the person in the room that should go first is the person of the highest rank. And I, when I first thought about, when I first heard it, I was like, oof, you know, like the, you know, the officer is going to get up in front and do it. And I just always thought that his explanation, and now I believe it to be true. And when I teach that to other people, especially young people or young officers, anybody in the group, why do you think a young officer wouldn't want to go first? He's afraid of um, making a mistake or being vulnerable, I would say. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head and everybody else can chime up. It is fear, right? You know, here's a guy who maybe is new in rank and, you know, he's like gone through his career. Now he's taken a promotion. He's the leader of the, of the crew and he's standing there and he's thinking, oh my gosh, I've worked so hard. If my, I can't, I'm not going to, I don't want to get knocked back. Like there's this fear about it and he's fearful to be vulnerable, right? He's fearful to put himself out there because he doesn't know what the response is going to be. And it's probably running through his head is if I say I screwed up, I'm going to like fall back light years in the face of these guys. So he hides it. Does anybody think anything else? Hey, Brian, I think, uh, I think that's spot on. Uh, and I think it has a ton to do with the culture that we've created, not, you know, not being humbled and, and, you know, having that just that negative connotation of being attacked. If you're going to say something that, maybe isn't 100% correct. Absolutely. And, and Ben, I appreciate that. And I, I like your view on it. It, it, it is self-driven. That, that is a problem that we've created, right? And if you have a negative, a negative process like that, like where a guy can't openly say what he, that he doesn't feel comfortable to say, hey, I maybe did this thing that wasn't right because we can learn a lot from that out of the fear that he's going to be crushed then that's, that's our responsibility to create that environment where, hey, we understand that defects are going to happen or our shortcomings are going to happen. And this is the spot where this isn't like, hey, we're all sitting around in the morning drinking coffee, busting each other's chops. This is like as a group, we're trying to get better. And that environment where you feel free to bring up the mistake. Otherwise, we just stick our head in the sand and we go on like, I mean, why are we even getting together, right? I mean, yeah, we can say the good things and we can learn from the good things and we should, we should focus on good things. But if we have members standing there unwilling to come forward because you could go to an incident, like if all of us went to a fire right now, we came in on different apparatus or we came there with different responsibilities, we all have different what about the fire or the incident. We have different perspectives, right? Say John shows up on an engine, I show up on a truck. I could be going to a totally different side of the building, think something didn't go well. I never asked for John's perspective. So I kind of walk around with this, like, oh, this wasn't going well. But maybe if I went and asked John who had at the same incident, who had a different perspective, he could shed some insight that would turn my perspective to go, oh, you know what I thought was going shitty? That engine crew really met something out of the box. 
And now that I have John's perspective, they actually did a really phenomenal job and I learned something along the way. Does that make sense? But that has to be purposeful. Like John has to come up to me and, and I mean, one, not John has to come up to me. I think it's actually more on me to go to John and go, John, hey, what'd you have over there? And me to get over myself of just, oh, that was all effed up, right? To have that environment. So I, I think that's interesting. And the way that they explained it in it is you think about the officer should go first. I liked his explanation. Because if you thought about it as data points and you would think about, and this isn't to diminish any, anyone in the firefighting ranks because it's an absolute valuable, right? <laughs> the system doesn't work without that rank. But as you move up in, in rank and more responsibility, you have more data points, right? So if you have more data points, statistically, you would have a greater chance of screwing something up. Where that firefighter might be, hey, you're the nozzle firefighter. Your responsibility is to get that nozzle, nozzle and a proper length of line to the back door. Though extremely important, you either do it or you don't, so you have less data points, right? I'm not saying that's unchallenging because there are a bunch of challenges with that. But then if you would go to the chief's perspective or the captain's perspective, you might have a bunch of other data points. So the chances that you would have something, to, something that you did less than favorably and be able to start off an after action review and get it headed in the right direction, probability says that that exists. So once I kind of wrap my head around that and as I've taught, it seems to help younger people to go, oh yeah, as I guess as, as a lieutenant, you know, I have more things to be responsible for. It does make sense that I would screw something up and to get that after action in that environment going. So, uh, and then I like this quote to end it, the best design institutional educational structures can only do so, so much if the students don't have the curiosity to explore, discover, think, and learn, right? That we can lead a horse to water, right? But we can't force them to drink, right? I can spend all day out on the apparatus floor teaching you, but at some, day, some point, the members that we recruit through our selection process have to have skin in the game, right? They have to be committed to the process. So if we can find those people, character experience, teachable, you know, willing to pick up the wall and run with it, um, those are the kind of people we look for. So one of the things that when I start to look at how do we, like we've selected these people and now we're kind of moving on into the development stage, like where are we going to spend our energy in development? Like what's important to us as a group? What are we aiming? What is our end goal in developing these people? Where are we trying to get with them? And I think it's important to spend time like saying, where do we want to go? Like, I guess we could just take, okay, on Monday, we're going to do force entry. On Tuesday, we're going to do heavy lifting. We could just keep throwing tactics at them, but we have to, I feel it's important to have a, a, a very clear what we're, what we're aiming for, right? If you think if you're doing a project around your house, you have some end goal in mind, you just don't start, you know, throwing up two by fours or ripping down walls. So I was listening to a podcast. If you guys haven't read this book, I think it's a really good read. The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. He was on a podcast with the Michigan Critical Team Institute. At the end of every Michigan Critical Team Institute podcast, they do what they call, what would you do on Monday? And basically they're asking the guests the following question. They're saying, you're dropped into a brand new team on Monday. Um, what's the first thing you do with them? So Dan's Coyle's answer was the following. He said, I would do the best barrier test. And the best barrier test consisted of two parts. And the first one was asking the team that he was dropped into of what do we look like on our best day? And then the second part was, 
what keeps us from being that every day? You know, what are the obstacles to that? So those are two good questions in themselves. Um, but sometimes I replace that second question with, you know, what is our, not only what do we look like, what does our team look like on our best day from our perspective? So I'm going to go through what I think is my list. And this list is still a work in progress. Sometimes I change it up. But if these things, if the following things uh, happen, the incident usually goes well from our perspective. And I'm happy with the crew's performance. So one of the things that happens is that we're going to the run and that we're taking in the information that's, you know, broadcast over the radio, uh, shows up on the MX, and that some sort of planning happens in the rig or on the way to the emergency. If we think about it from the fire perspective, um, you know, the rescue's traveling, say there's two or three companies operating before we get there, that there's some sort of chatter either between me or the crew, or I can hear the backseat chattering. They're, you know, highlighting the things that they think are going right. They're trying to start to find holes where we're going to plug ourselves in as a rescue. But there's a lot of conversation going on. Uh, if I think about it from the extrication point of view, if I have a group, I'll ask the group, you know, who's been to a junkyard training extrication? You know, everybody raises their hands. Who's been to an actual emergency? Again, everybody raises their hands. And then I said, okay, who's been to training an actual auto extrication emergency? And the first thing when you get off that rig is the words, what the F are going through your head. Like, I just couldn't replicate a car doing 80 miles an hour hitting a hundred year old tree. I couldn't do that at the junkyard. And there's like that stutter as a boss, like you're just not getting off the rig and you see the picture, you see the solution clearly that you need that feedback from your crew and that feedback um, when you have that ability to have your crew feeding you information, but also at the same time, giving you the respect or knowing that through experience that a stated decision has been made and they flip kind of back to that execution phase, but then that's not going well. So now we're back into the feedback stage. When that, can, when that system exists almost flawlessly, the operation's almost always headed in the right direction for us. That they executed actions with tactical proficiency, right? That once we got there, if they had to force the door, throw up a ladder, you know, breach a wall, whatever it is, that that was done with tactical proficiency. Um, that members adapted to changing conditions, that they displayed initiative and independent action. And members were a stabilizing influence on other members operating the scene, right? Another quote to Liam, what two things are contagious on the fire ground? I gave you one of them right there, calm. What's the other one? Panic or screaming. Yeah, absolutely. And that we operated as a team. So out of those, what's the hardest ones to get to there? That members were a stabilizing influence on other members at the scene, right? So when I get a new guy, usually, like, where do you think he is on the curve? He's going to a fire, mostly with senior guys on the rescue company, a company that's looked to for a high, pretty high expectation. You know, maybe he's working with the captain or a senior lieutenant that day. Like, how do you think he's feeling internally? I think uh, at first he's probably in the optimal zone. And then when he's faced with the actual emergency, he's, he's quickly on the backside of the curve. Yeah, we can definitely, I mean, he's definitely primed to slide to the backside of the curve, right? For a lot of reasons. And, but that's something that we can, we can work on through training, right? Uh, there's a great quote through this book, The uh, Emergency Mind, and it talks about, it's attributed to uh, Napoleon, and it says that we can drill out, drill out panic and replace it with calm. They use a different word in the book, but it's French and it's too hard for me to pronounce. So it, it's basically take panic and replace it with cold-bloodedness. 
and that ability to kind of like remain calm, like ice in our veins, right? And we can do that through very purposeful training. So that is one that I see that I have to work on with the members. Like I get a new guy, like I, I like you can look over at these guys and go, oh boy, right? Like, you know, the eyes are a little like, you know, something's happening. The eyes are big. They seem a little jittery. Like they're, they're just a little bit off. We can help drill that out of them and get them to a better place. The one above it then, members adapted to changing conditions, displaying initiative and independent action. After 14 years as a company officer and 11 and a half in the rescue, that just doesn't happen, right? You don't go to a fire with a bunch of probationers, as probably you shouldn't, and you don't see them displaying a bunch of initiative and independent action, right? You know, I always tell people, as an officer, one of the biggest things is to read your people, right? And if you think about it, if I'm working on the rescue company, so I'm on the green, my driver has the least amount of time on my rigging. So he's got four years on the rig. He's got 15 years on the job. My senior man has 23. The next guy has 23 or 22. Next guy's got 18. And then I got another guy with 14. So I go with a lot of experience, right? So where should I be operating? I should be operating like at optimal, right? I should be pushing the envelope in some way. We should be like, we should be able to detect, we shouldn't be walking around like a caterpillar. We should be able to, I should be able to spread that crew out and they should be able to operate with initiative and independent action. But I show up to work tomorrow and those guys are off and I've got the youngest guys in the house working. Can I push them to the same level? Right? No, right? I got to read them as people, right? And I got to, I would be irresponsible to push them to the same limit that I'm pushing my regular crew with. And one of the big points of why I can do that, and I don't want to say I'm like I'm a, a responsible for this because those guys are usually responsible for it, is that we have created that culture or that environment where we want them to, we want to act with initiative and independent action. And when we're talking about initiative and independent action, you know, we're talking basically that we're creating those firefighters into being subordinate leaders, right? You know, I like that pretty much anywhere that initiative, expertise, excellence, anywhere that is, anybody that possesses that is a leader in the company. Um, so we're creating subordinate leaders and those subordinate leaders are acting with independent action under what's frequently termed thanks to the military's commander's intent, right? That we spend a lot of time before the incident talking about you know, what we wanna accomplish at certain incidents and that they understand that in lieu of a direct order from me or in, you know, that we're split, that I'm in the A, side of, a sector of the building and they're you know, on the C side of the sector of the building, that they understand the general picture of what I want done, the route to get from A to B you know, they know what they want to get to be the route they take there might be a little different than I would take, or it might be different because I can't tell them the route to take because I'm not standing in the back of the building and they have to figure out to get to be, but they figure that out through themselves, right? That they're not calling me on the radio and go, Hey cap, we know you sent us to the back to do this, but now it's this. And should we do this? Like, we, we just can't do that over the radio. It's like, it, it would just slow us down. It would just, we'd, we'd cease to be the, the, the rescue that we are, right? Because I'm, I'm worrying about my own tactical objectives. What I need them to do is if I tell them, hey, do a vent in their search on the second floor in the back, 
and they get there and the window that I thought they were going to vent into search is full of fire. They have the initiative to go, okay, that task isn't viable. We're going to do a search through the back door and up the stairs, right? They, they have that, they don't have to call me and ask my permission or to like size up the scene for me. They might call me on the radio and go, Hey, cat, just so you know, we're going up the stairs. Inherently, what do I say back? I don't say, hey, I told you to vent enter search through the second floor window. No, because I don't have the perspective of doing that. So I have to inherently trust them that something happened back there, that they're, they're adjusting the game plan. So, but what is that all subordinate leadership or uh, subordinate leaders, I'm sorry, subordinate leaders and working under commander's intent, what, is, what has to exist for that system to work? trust so absolutely trust right so mutual trust so just two quotes before we kind of dissect mutual trust uh in an environment where friction and uncertainty exists we need to develop people who can function without clear guidance without a clear path and without clear information so i think charlie black is a retired marine colonel i think i'm right on that the podcast he did definitely just a really fascinating uh insight to some things uh, and then in environments of uncertainty, we need to develop competent, agile, aggressive, subordinate leaders. We develop a mindset to be flexible and fluid in disorderly events. All right. Do you guys all think those are things that would be valuable to have on the fire ground? So mutual trust. So what is it? Mutual trust is a shared belief that we can depend on each other and achieve a common purpose. Well, okay. How do we achieve it? So trust is gained through everyday actions, interactions, more than grand or occasional speeches, right? If anybody in this group is like soon to be a formal leader, here's like the really quick way to take your leadership and flush it down the toilet. On your first day, come out with like a whole list of expectations. Make sure the guys know like that you're going to like demand absolute like performance and then immediately go back to your office and close the door and like get in the recliner position, right? Or that you were that person who in your career, and I know it doesn't exist in this group, otherwise you wouldn't be logged in, but we all know the person who as a firefighter was like avoided work at all costs as if it was contagious and then made grade and was like the first guy to spit out a list of expectations, right? That's a really quick way to take your leadership and flush it down the toilet. It comes from shared experiences. Right. So the more I work with somebody, you know, the more fires we go to, the more emergencies we go to, we have, you know, things go well or things don't go well, but we're able to critique them honestly and openly. Obviously, I think our mutual trust is going to go up. It's a product of training, right? Uh, we do a training together. You know, let's say we're repelling. Well, you know, John is responsible for setting my anchor. You know, I go over the edge. There's some sort of bond between John and I that he set that anchor right. I'm not going to walk over and check it. And so the more we train together, um, the more we're able to trust each other. Uh, it's a result of vulnerability, right? And we've mentioned that word tonight. Um, I know in the first, I watched the recording of the first episode. Um, and I know you guys had a pretty big conversation about vulnerability, right? And it's that ability to be open and honest. And a lot of times, and Daniel Coyle talks about this in his book, he talks about a lot of people think that you must, you first you have to have trust and then you can have vulnerability. And really it's different is that you, you're vulnerable 
and then you'll gain trust. One of the things I asked somebody is I said, what is your measure of when you trust somebody that you can be vulnerable, right? Like, how do you, like, what day is that? Like, does something happen? Does, does a lifelong friendship? I, I don't, I like, I don't know how to measure that. I don't know if anybody in the group has an idea on that. So I feel like we kind of got to take that leap of faith and be vulnerable. And then we open ourselves up and say, Hey guys, I, I know maybe you weren't there, but like I shit the bed when I was forcing the door in the back and this is why, right. I'm showing vulnerability. And then those guys say, Oh, well, what happened? And I walk them through it and they like, give me like, like feedback, like, Oh, you know, what you should have done is you, you know, you attacked it with the fork. You should attack it with the ads or this, that, or the other thing. Well now, like, I was like, Oh, that's cool. Like, I'm trusting those guys to give me good feedback. So I think Daniel Coyle has it right. It's vulnerability then trust. So it can be incidental operations or it can be delivery, deliberately cultivated. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So if we're going to operate with commander's intent, you know, ask yourself as a boss, you know, do I trust, train, and vigorously support my subordinates? Right? Like, don't expect this. Like, don't go to a, don't go to a run with your people. And like your guy comes back and like, he didn't do something in the back. And you're like, you know, what the F you didn't do anything. Like, why didn't you do that? Like, look, look yourself in the mirror, go, okay. Did I spend the time with them prior to this event happening to give them the tools that he needed to succeed? Right. Did he know that I, that we operated in an environment where I trusted him to make a right decision and call an audible. Right. And did, if he was wrong and the chief got in his backside about it, does he know that I support him, that I'm going to go to bat for him, right? Like if, if those answers are no, don't expect your people to operate with commander's intent, right? Because you haven't created an environment as an officer to set the stage for that. So what are some of our challenges? So this gentleman's name is Craig Perillo. Um, he's my senior man on the green shift. He's a senior man in the house. He's got 23 years on the job. I worked with him at Ladder 9 when I came on a job. He was a plank owner of Rescue 2, so I've worked with him for 11 and a half years there. Like, if we look back at that list about mutual trust, like, where do you think we are on the scale? Like, high, right? We're high on the scale and a lot because what do you think our shared experiences are? Numerous, right? I mean, I've shared some of my best, best and worst days on the job with Craig, right? I've gone to great fires with him. We've had success at extrications. I've also, this is the guy who, when I'm up at four o'clock in the morning and can't sleep is usually the same guy at the kitchen table, right? Drinking coffee with, he's walked me through some of my darkest days, right? Mutual trust is through the roof. My ability to be vulnerable with him is, is limitless, right? He is the quintessential subordinate leader, right? He operates with commander's intent on the regular. Now this guy's name is Joey Miller. So he is, uh, his, I mentioned his dad before. His dad was my driver, and I have the pleasure of working with his son. Another indication besides the bifocals that you're aging on the job. But So Joey is an outstanding fireman. All those things on the list, right? Great attitude, uh, teachable, uh, great mindset. Uh, he, comes, he has a really strong um, – his dad did concrete and construction. Joey inherited all those traits. So Joey has four years on the job. I've worked with him for the last two years. The amount of shared experience is lower. You know, the amount of training I've done with him to gain shared experience is lower. But Joe still rides on the rescue with me. Everyone, you know, he'll slide the floor. So, like, one of my constant things that I think about 
And it's kind of one of the, the impetuses for leadership under fire in general. And Jason might've talked about it, that one of his frustrations when he came back was from being deployed was, well, how do I get to be one of these great guys on the FDNY? You know, how do I get there? And the answer he got back from a lot of people was, well, it comes with time, right? It comes with time and experience. And he was somewhat frustrated by that answer. And so that's constantly in my head, like, how do I speed up the clock to move Joe from the Joe category where he is now to get him closer to what Craig Perillo does on a daily basis, right? Which if I can do that, then I can put out a more consistent, better product with what the rescue company is tasked with performing at. Um, but there's a challenge there, right? And if we say, well, it just comes with experience. Well, you know, the amount of fires I go to is down. You know, the amount of extrications I go up to is, is up actually, but generally the amount of emergencies we're going to is down. I just can't rely on those things to build that mutual trust to build performance. So that, that challenge is always rattling around in my head of you know, how do I speed up that clock? And one of the things is, is that I need to be deliberate, right? It talks about mutual trust being deliberate. So that sounds good, Brian, but hopefully this next example will give you guys some insight as to what I think it is to be deliberate and where I, where I saw some benefit with it. So the rescue company in Milwaukee, it's a great rig to be on, but we still are second out the door on EMS runs. So the engine goes out on EMS run, like about a minute later, we go out on EMS run for a car wreck, report of a car wreck. So we get out onto the road, we're headed over. It's about midnight within, we're about two blocks from the firehouse and they call me on the radio. They said, hey, Rescue 2, uh, it's now a report of a car versus a uh, city bus. A head on collision with one track. Okay, so they fill it out. They give us the auto extrication assignment, which sends two additional ladders um, our way in the engine company. But by the time all this gets going, we're on scene. We're going a little bit west of us, which the, the houses are more spread out. So we're going to be on scene for a little bit. So there is one individual trapped, like a really good extrication, like complicated, kind of a head scratcher. So myself, James Goodwin, and the driver go to where the driver is on the driver's side uh, and we start working and it like needs all of our attention. We're kind of like talking on the rig that night with us is Joe Miller. And then the, the other young guy on the rig is a guy named Ryan Balish. So right away, they're like anticipating the moves that need to be done. So, right. They're relying on their training. They're like, this guy looks like the dash is sitting on them. Sometime the captain's probably going to call for the Ram. So like they're laying out the Rams. They're, they're getting everything squared away. They get all the tools squared away. And uh, I tell them, hey, go look at the other side and do what you think needs to be done on the other side for this. That's all I say to them. Like, I don't give them like a specific technique. So they go over. One benefit we have on the rescue is we have tons of equipment. They go over, they get another set of spreaders and cutters. They get the door off. They make all the cuts. They get a, a, a Ram in place. So that by the time we're ready to displace the dash on the driver's side, everything is squared away on that side. They, they just look over, they go, Cap, we're ready to push whenever you're ready. And uh, we push, we get the guy out. Unfortunately, the guy passes away. But I came back from that run and it would have been easy. Like anything I say tonight is like my personal highlight reel, right? Like just imagine that like we would sit here for hours and hours and hours and days to go over my failures, right? So this is one where I was like, because it would have been easy, even though the gentleman died, 
I thought the work that Goody and James did on the driver's side was exceptional. Like they like pushed off some crazy points. They, they adapted well under pressure. It would have been easy for us to like dwell on what our success was on like what you would consider the challenging side and overlook what those guys did. Oh, okay. On the other side, you took the door off like non-crumpled space. You got ready to displace the dash. It would have been easy to overlook, but I was like in that moment, I had a moment of clarity and was like deliberate and went over to those guys and go like, Hey, what, what'd you guys walk through? Like I let it say that in their words, right. Give that opportunity to shine. Like cap, we know that bar runs through the dash. And sometimes when you lift on one, it can pinch on the other. We know that you like to, you know, push both sides at the same time. So we took the door off. Uh, we thought a ram would be good because there was no patient involved on this side. So we weren't worried about blocking the, the uh, egress of it. Uh, so they walked through the whole thing, like spot on and not like in a, like a fake bullshit way, but like in an honest fireman, to fireman way, I like tried to explain to them, like, you guys did the exact right thing at the right time. And you made us, you made this operation so much better. What I'm trying to have them walk away with is this feeling of, I took a chance. I relied heavily on my training. I had a general idea what the captain wanted and I executed the act without like fully checking in and they walked away with a win there, right? So we're moving that needle in the right direction for them to, to operate with commander's intent, right? Like success breeds success. So if you start to stack up the wins, right? Think about playing basketball, like, like you're shooting around, buckets start to go in. All of a sudden you kind of get to this feeling like, man, there isn't a shot I'm gonna miss here. Like I've never had that happen to me in my life, but no, but it's, uh, you just get, you, the confidence starts to build and you, it, it, it's beneficial. All right, so kind of talked about selection. Uh, you know, we talked about building mutual trust, getting the members to operate with commander's intent. Um, obviously, I, you know, I'm a huge, and I'm sure many of you are, like we're a huge proponent of, you know, the tactical-based training. I think that if we don't build that foundation, you know, our expectations should be pretty low of what our people are gonna perform, what they're gonna look like performing uh, when the actual event happens. So if we just go through that training process, like that member learns the tactical skill, right? So we get that new member to the house, you know, we walk them through, you go walking through a process, whether it be forcing a door, stabilizing a vehicle, whatever it is, um, then they learn that tactical skill. And then they practice that tactical skill and they get, you know, somewhat competent at it, right? And they're able to walk away and replicate what they learned in training uh, and then execute that skill at an actual event, right? So a member applies tactical skill as they learned it at an actual event. So as they learned it. So we're going to talk about these rescue 42s that we have on the rig. So we go to a junkyard. Obviously, this is an easy thing for me to replicate at a junkyard, right? A non-destroyed car on its side. Rescue 242s, this is, you know, a bunch of, you know, this is overkill here, but right. Hey, set it up in the triangle tie one rescue 42 to the other rescue 42, right? You've created the strongest geometrical shape. This thing is stable. Uh, you know, talk about the downsides, where to place it. This is a pretty easy skill to teach a guy. And then it's great when we go to an actual event, car rolled over on its side. You know, we got one person in the car. We want to flap the roof down. You pass the young guy on our rig, get stabilization and glass management, the most glorious of all extrication techniques. And he's able to execute that. He sets up the 42s. 
does it just like we did in training, everything presents, and then there's a win, right? So that could happen, or we know now with leadership under fire, giving us some of the verbiage for it, we could learn the tactical skill. They could practice it on their own. You could ask them, hey, are you good with that tactical skill? They're not lying to you. They could say, yep, I'm good with that tactical skill. And then you could have the actual event and they could shit the bed, right? Does that mean they didn't train enough? Does it mean they weren't listening to you uh, while you were delivering the information on that? In many cases, the answer is no, they, they were listening. They understood it. They, you watched them do it. They understood it. it's all the other things that are happening, right? So before I go on, I'll just tell a quick story. I'm, uh, battalion chief calls me in to his office. He goes, hey, Brian, you got a minute? He goes, I'm a little frustrated. I got a good officer at a good engine company. He's got some new people. Every day he asked me to go out and train, right? I'm like, oh, cool. What, what are they training on? Oh, they're training on hose layouts. So a two and a half story frames are pretty common building for us. He goes, they're laying out. I'm like, what's the problem, chief? He's like, well, I've had a couple of fires with them recently where their performance is less than stellar. Before I was, you know, with LUF, I would have been of the mindset to tell them, well, they just got to go out if they're pulled, you know, 10 sections of hose, they got to pull 20. If they pulled 20, they got to pull 50. You see where I'm going with it. They just got to train harder for longer with more intensity, right? And my post LUF is like, no, what's happening is, is that they are training and they're training with good intent, but it's all the other things that make our job difficult. All those external friction points, right? The, you know, maybe the mother in the street screaming that her kid's up there, just the fire itself venting out of one window, independent of anybody trapped. Uh, the pressure, like think about that engine company goes out and stretches that line. Well, there's not two other engines and three, two trucks in a rescue screaming up their backside, pushing them to get into the building, right? It's totally different. So they're not crapping the bed on the individuals. They might be crapping the bed on the individual skill, but it's not because they weren't paying attention in training. It's all the other friction points that are raining down on them. And that's like a common theme through this, through not only through LUF, but through the next, uh, well, what five weeks you guys have left. But let's say that it does go well. So we're headed in the right direction, right? So we've the tactical skill, they've applied it now. Where I really see like the, the next step for a member happen is when they are able to adapt that skill at the scene of an emergency. And so we'll talk our way through a, a quick run here. So this run just happened last week. That's like a two person ATV. It's just weird, right? Like right in the middle of a pretty deprived neighborhood they have this ATV store. Two cars are reckless driving down what 76th Street. One of them careens off another, travels about 80 feet, and unfortunately pins a 13-year-old that was riding his bike down the sidewalk uh, between the car and right where that one, uh, it's a Paratech right there, that Paratech strut is. But they're able to stabilize it, uh, move the car back, get the kid. You know, fortunately, he dies on the way to the hospital. But if you can see some of the things that so when you really look at this picture, some of the things that don't exist are, is that the Rescue 42, or in this case, the Paratech, which operates under the same principle, it's not tied back to another Paratech or Rescue 42, right? In this case, they went to, if you can see that sign in the back, they just went to a substantial object. And then on the other one, they brought it back and they actually tied in, uh, they tied both of them back to that substantial object and then hooked one into another strut. So the members adapted because of the way the car was, 
uh, or the ATV was, the access points. And when you see that in your members and you see them adapt like that, you're like, that's like, you know, like, I don't know if it's probably corny, but it's like the magic is happening, right? You, they're starting to think independently. You know, I think about my own journey on the MFD. I had a really seasoned uh, firefighter and gone to pretty, pretty good amount of fires with them. And one day I jumped off the rig at a garage fire and I did some forcible entry work with a metal saw. And he comes around to me and he goes, hey, Brian, and I had like six months on the job. And he goes, just, hey, congratulations. And I'm like, oh, what's up, Dave? And he's like, wow, your first independent thought. And I guess maybe it, like looking back on it, I should have been horrified, like with six months on that, that's the first time he thought, saw me act independently. But I was like, it was like the greatest thing that anybody had ever said to me at that point, right? So when I see that in the members now, you know, it's, it's a reflection of those members that are working with them in the company and that adaptability. So when we learn a skill, think about extrication. There's only so many ways we can set up cars at a junkyard, right? And it's hard to replicate the damage that we'll see in real life. How do we bridge that gap? How do we get to the point where they're able to work with adaptability? And we'll kind of talk about that. I'll tell you one way that I went about training that, you know, I'm kind of almost embarrassed to talk about it now. So does everybody have like an SCBA confidence course at their training academy? So we have one and one day I was like, hey, we're gonna go out and this is the nickname the fellas gave it, the dream crusher. We're gonna go out, I'm gonna take half the company and I'm gonna stick them in low on belt or low on air. We'll send like another company in to search for them. Like, I like add in every, everything to this drill. Well, the two guys that were low on air to start, they don't come out. The guys that I sent in, they all run out of air, right? So everybody runs out of air. They came out, there was a legit uh, fist fight between two dudes, like not a lie. Like, <laughs> like this drill went to shit, right? Like well-intentioned, I go out there. Well, I had just put too much, like I had just put too many stressors into this drill to ever let it be successful, right? And even if they would have been successful or if it wouldn't have just dramatically failed as it did, my ability to pull that drill apart and find out what we did right and what we did wrong was almost zero, right? So a lot of credit to LUF. Uh, and then um, just one more book recommendation before the night's over. This book called The Emergency Mind by a guy named, named Dan Dworkis. Uh, he's an emergency room physician. A lot of good things in the book, but one of these things he talks about is applying graduated pressure. So if we think about it in that dream crusher scenario, the amount of friction points that I introduced were so many that when that system broke, I had no way to tear it apart and go, okay, we did these four things right, but this friction point that I introduced was the part that broke the system. So let's take those four things that we did right, share it with the group, kind of, you know, make sure everybody knows and we'll make that practice. And here's the point where we cracked. Let's take that point. Let's talk about it, re-drill on it. And then on a further drill down, we'll reintroduce it. And maybe we get to that point now. And it's another point we crack at. And we can take that point and we can drill on that. But we kind of do it in this crawl, walk, run fashion 
a little different than, than like the historical thought on that, but there's this way to measure. I'll get to the endpoint eventually. I just have to be more purposeful about it and it might take me a little bit longer, right? The LUF does a really nice job and we can talk a little bit about tonight, but they're talking, they talk about, Jason words it very well. He tell, talks about designing drills that are relevant, realistic, and responsible. It's like doing like a stress inoculation, right? That we're giving them trainings, but we're building them up and we're adding the things that they'll actually encounter in real life, but then doing it at a point where we're also offering, that we're doing it at a point where we're metering it, that we can tell when that they're struggling and then we're pulling it apart and giving them honest feedback. And that would probably be a whole lecture in itself, like taking apart one of those drills, but just for you guys, and if you're not already doing it, and I'm sure some of you are doing it and probably learn this a lot faster than I did because I'm a little boneheaded, is to stress your, you want to stress your people, want, you want to stress them in that relevant and responsible way so that you're able to offer them good feedback and you're able to progress as a company and as an individual. So applying knowledge under pressure is a skill, right? So just like anything else, if it's a skill, we can teach it. So a little bit like, well, what do you do for training, Brian, that you feel helps, helps people out? So one of the things that I do for training is I know that when we talked about at the beginning, I identify what I want my end goal to be. Well, one of my end goals that I want to have is that I want my members to operate with initiative and to develop ability to critically think, right? So if I develop trainings where I'm always telling them, okay, here's the scenario, here's the outcome I see, here are the tactics that I want you to employ to get to that endpoint, but here's A and here's B, and I want you to take this exact course, I'm really kind of hampering their ability, that ability to employ critical thinking and think their, think their way through a complex problem set. The other thing I'm doing is I'm like, like it's very McNulty eccentric at that point, right? And that's not only egotistical, but it's terrible for the company because I work with 29, well, now I'm gifted with 32 other guys that all have their own experiences, their own thoughts, and could have way better answers than I would ever think of. So this is a video online, um, but it's a, a video from Chicago, really good fire in a, like a cold storage facility. And at one point, this is what shows up at the window. So there's two members trapped inside there. And basically, if you could picture this in your head, like an elevated window, and he just can't pull himself up into it, right? He's that exhausted, right? So the members are operating outside. So we watch this video and like we go back to the front, you know, one of the things we're really good about the fire service is like ridiculing and critiquing almost to a negative, right? And we could watch this video and we could like uh, Monday morning quarterback it to death. Like that's not how we want to watch these videos because as you watch this, the members of the Chicago Fire Department worked to exhaustion and did a phenomenal job in getting these guys out. So we watched it, picked up those skills, but then I just kind of threw down the gauntlet and I said, all right, guys, like you're walking past and this is presents you, like you're sent for a task to get a ladder or whatever, or some tool off the rig. And you, on the way to that task, you walk by and this is what you see. Like based off of what you're carrying and what you have in your pockets, what can you do about it? So we built a simulator and that's our elevated window there, right? So this guy's name is Anthony Gaglioni and that's the elevated window that he can't get out of. And basically they took some straps and put them together, threw them through the window. And this is what they came up with. 
Okay. So like a little bit about the process here, like that was kind of like our finished product where we're like, okay, yeah, that's a usable technique, right? That could be a game plan amongst many other game plans, uh, A, a B, a C, whatever it is, right? We'd also want ladders. We could use a two to one high to the window, whatever it is. But that, to get to that point, we tried tons of things that were terrible, right? That didn't work, that failed, that we were like, hey, like, here's a really well-intended thought. And we tried it and we're like, ah, too many moving parts. No, we don't want to introduce more equipment. Whatever it was, we kind of threw it on the scrap pile. And those thoughts from the good to the bad came, were being thrown by all the members, right? So this, is a, this was a win for us, right? We created an environment where like the, uh, the, the commander of the Marine Corps says below, that we created an environment where of zero, where zero, zero defects wasn't, to, wasn't tolerated, right? That we were tolerant of, uh, of mistakes and conducive to expression and initiative. So everybody threw it in. And then at the end of the day, this technique came out of a junior member of the company is the one that had this idea. So depend, not dependent on rank, um, not dependent on experience in the company, we move forward as a company because in this one, we won and created an environment where everybody had a voice, right? And we hopefully, I think as a byproduct, develop that member's ability to critically think their way through a problem. I, I'm actually happy that it took us so long to get there um, because I think it kind of, it, it helped us with the process. So when we talk about bridging that gap, so let's think, if you guys can just think back to that picture of the rescue 42s on the car on its side. And then the ATV or UTV uh, with the kind of a different configuration that we're looking for that adaptability. And so, but it's very difficult for me, it's impossible for me to come up with every possible scenario that everybody in my company is going to face, right? But somewhere within the company or on the responses we go to, we're starting to increase the amount of experiences we have as a collective, it's just that any given person is only going to a, 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 you know, their given share of that. So Preston Klein talks about that we train for certainty and we educate for uncertainty, right? And if I peel that apart and like every quote can have its own personal meaning to you, if I look at it and I take it back to that, the rescue 42 scenario, if I'm training for certainty, well, I know it's certainty if I wanna use the rescue 42s in their most basic, well laid out purpose design, it's 242 strapped together at the bottom, right? But now we educate for uncertainty. So what the fellas did, that run happened on the red, wound on the green, so I came in the next morning. So educating for uncertainty happens at that exchange of information or one of the places it happens. Like when you come in, when you're putting up your gear, like do you guys talk to your, the guy taking you down or the guy that's, you know, or the, you know, if you're taken up, that, it's all those fine details that like, hey, we had this run yesterday. We used their Husky 42s, but we used them in this really unique way, right? The best way to learn anything is to actually experience it, right? You taste it, you smell it, you feel it, right? It, it becomes part of you. Secondary to that is to have somebody else explain that experience to you in a way that really kind of gets you into the moment, right? And I, that's what I think. When I think of it, we educate for uncertainty. It's all those little interactions um, that happened during the day, um, or that happened during the course of operations, or when we come back and do after action reviews to make the most of that event. 
And then we are more than I, uh, we must be vulnerable and humble enough to have our team make the most of any experience. Um, you know, I love that quote that, right. You can go to tons of fires, but like, if you're not learning from them, yeah, you, you went to tons of fires, you're walking away with something, but you could probably learn more if you were spent some time in reflection and you definitely could help somebody else who wasn't there by reflecting on it and then passing on what you learned. And this is where I think one of those, you know, one of the number of places it is to happen, right? Is the sitting around the coffee table, everything goes on here, right? From this is the change of shifts in the morning. There's some guys cleaning tools. There's some guys that kind of like have poor posture. They're probably tired from the day before. They could be talking about a run they had. They could be talking about, you know, something that happened to them this weekend. How was the fishing? How did building your fence? Whatever it is, I'm just happy that they're talking. But a lot of education happens at this table, right? And it's this constant strive for, I'm not here to like posture. I'm not here to say, hey, look what I did. And the senior members are open and have that white belt mentality. This understanding of, I just need the information. I don't care who it's coming from or where it's coming from. I need good information. And hopefully we're providing it to you that I get better, right? And my, my ego is going to be set aside. And a lot of that happens at this kitchen table. Um, and then the importance of the performance loop, right? That we prepare for the event, right? So that we're training at the junkyard, we're forcing the door, whatever it is, we prepare for the event. We get that chance to execute. We reflect on our execution, whether it be through the lens of the individual or the, the group. And then we learn from that. So we pull away learning. And then what we do, the, this is the important part, is then that we just start back over. Okay, this is best practices. We're going to keep those in place. It's important to take those best practices. And if a younger member or some other member wasn't at the event that could benefit from them, that we pass on that best practice. And then that we go back and the things that we didn't do poorly, we re-prepare on, right? Or the things that we did do well on, we double down on when we start to institute them as like maybe the new norm for the company. And then that just process just continues to, continues to carry on. And I think one of the biggest um, parts for me is, is that reflection, right? Is that, you know, I can go to these experiences and if I don't take time to dissect it, and say, hey, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What can I teach to others? And Dorcas has this other great quote. He says, time on target just isn't enough. It's also about what we do with the experience, right? And I like that. So time on target, it really depends on what you do with the experience afterwards. I think that, you know, LUF, one of the things when I speak personally about it is some of the things in the LUF I did inherently, right? Like I put my hand on guys' shoulders, right? Told them to take a deep breath. I guess I didn't understand what was actually, you know, going on. It gave me the verbiage to maybe pass things on. Like I'm a buff. And so I watch YouTube videos and I watch the, like, you know, uh, all the FDNY, you know, riding with FDNY. And you watch it, like how much it was always these guys were talking about the kitchen table. When they talked about after 9-11, they talked about the kitchen table is what brought us back to where we are now, right? And you talk to any firehouse and they talk about the importance of that. And to end on a little bit of a soapbox, like when I came on, I came on at ladder nine, there was nine people assigned there, four on the engine and five on the truck. Well, I came on before there were cell phones in the firehouse. Like I didn't have a cell phone. So 
anybody was going to talk to me, which most of them didn't at the time because I was a probationer. But if I was going to talk to anybody, I could talk to eight other people, right? Now, if I go to that same firehouse, I could talk to nobody in that firehouse, but I could have conversations with thousands of other people at any given time, right? And to, to our detriment, right? So there's, I came up when I was a relief lieutenant, I would go to this house. Everybody's probably got a house like this in their, their department that was like, oh, really? I'm going there. And I would jokingly say that I took roll call by hearing three other doors slam. And then I would see the people at lunch and dinner, right? And that's a leadership failure on my part. I should have got them out of their office and talking. But I mean, think about all those things you've learned at the kitchen table or in the fireman's office, whatever you want to call it, all those things of value that you've learned. And I think really where a lot of that education uh, takes, takes place and that education really focusing on the uncertainty of our job, which, you know, really exists everywhere for us. Um, and then this last quote, does anybody know who Hal Moore is? Anybody see we are, uh, we are soldiers? So Hal Moore, right? First in, last out. So it just talks about really is that he's talking about self-reflection, right? That when my guy, when he's unhappy with the performance of his company, one of the first things he did was like turn, the, turn it inward, right? Did I give him the tools? Did I set unreasonable expectations? Did I communicate well, right? Sometimes I'm super poor, poor at communication, right? And my wife just happened to walk down in the basement, but she could come on the Zoom right now and go, yes. Like sometimes I'll be saying something to someone and I'll be like, why aren't I getting the result that I want? And I get mad about it. And then I peel it back a little bit and I have time to think. And I'm like, no, dummy, it's, you didn't get the result you wanted because you were a super poor communicator about it. So for you, for those of you in the group that are officers, you know, before you go after your guys and are going to like lay into them about something, which sometimes is super is needed, is that you maybe take that second to look about and go, is the thing that I wanted done? Did I communicate it properly? Did I give them the tools? Did I set realistic expectations like Hal Moore's talking about that they were to accomplish that task? Does that make sense? I'd like to open it up. Yeah, yeah I, I just question. I just have a quick question. Oh, go ahead. Um, so talk, when we talk about uh, leaders taking accountability or um, showing their like in an instance where they screwed up with their guys uh, to try and bring them in to talk about it, the guys want to try and call me out for something that you know I might I might have done um, that is kind of as a boss looked over because that's just how it is sometimes. But when they do it. Um, it's unacceptable. Uh, sure. So it's, like, it's kind of they're, a weird they're spot put, to sit. They're putting you on the spot how to handle that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I would say that through my own experience, the thing is that what doesn't work is for you to come back over the top. Right. Like, no, no, I talk, you listen. That's the way this, this isn't you question me. Right. That, that probably doesn't get the company anywhere. Probably the best thing to do is to like, Take that deep breath, look them right back and go, no, you're right. Like take the air out of their cells and go, no, you're right. I screwed up. And what I need right now from you guys is I need like, what do you, how do you think I could have done it better? Like take that where they're trying to, you know, put you into a corner or put you into a box. Take that, you know, like they're kind of coming at you strong and like, just like deflate their, their uh, aggressiveness with honesty 
and vulnerability and go, yeah, you're right. Like, where are we going from here? Like, okay. like we need help. And, and maybe on the end of it, you not only diffuse that one incident, but you also get to this point where they're like, holy shit, the, the boss wants my feedback. And then the next time they're offering their feedback, they're not coming in this aggressive way because there are guys in the field, right? There's guys, guys, like you could be a new Lieutenant. There's guys who want to put you on spot, right? Like yeah. they enjoy that part of it. Like they, they want to bust your chops. And it took me a long time to do that because I was super defensive and I can still be that way. But over the course of time, what's going to help you is the more success you have, the easier it is to admit failure. Does that make sense? Like yeah. when I was a brand new officer, like I didn't want to admit anything wrong because I'm like, I don't have any street cred to like fall back on. Right. But now I feel mm -hmm. like, okay, I, like with all humility intact, I've had a fair amount of successes that I can kind of take a hit. Right. I know I'm not going to do everything right. Hopefully that answers your question. If anybody in the group has like great advice for a young officer, I'd appreciate it if you'd it share, like if my point didn't hit the mark. I think it was spot on. Yeah, re I'm uh, recently newly promoted as well in the organization. And uh, I loved your chat about vulnerability. I think this is something that is, we're having more and more about this conversation in the fire service. And I think it's great. Uh, Adam Grant's book, Think Again, talks a lot about psychological safety and the importance that they see it in the private sector. You know, uh, organizations such as like Facebook, Amazon, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, places that are trying to stay competitive and gain as much profit as possible, they're trying to figure out how do we get the most out of our individuals and psychological safety or a work environment that has that where people know they don't need to do just the minimum. They can, uh, they can be vulnerable, they can take risks, they can try new ideas. Um, they understand that failure is okay uh, in these situations. I think it's crucial for the fire service. Uh, I think we can all pull, draw stories from ourselves uh, where we ask, hey, who wants to try this scenario first? Or who wants to size up this you know, mock incident, that kind of stuff. And nobody, almost nobody uh, really wants to take that because we're all in our own heads about like, oh, I don't want to like mess that up or whatever it may be. So as a new officer, like I've tried to promote uh, psychological safety uh, a ton, just as well as my crew is all 20 years and over, uh, way senior. They know where I've come from. I started when I was 23 here. Uh, they helped me get to the point where I am, not only in the fire service, but in relationships and uh, financial reasons and investments, all these kinds of things. So uh, for me to all of a sudden wear this brass and think I got here, uh, you know, like I was born with all these answers would just be ridiculous and they wouldn't trust anything I had to say. So, yeah, I appreciate you chatting about the vulnerability um, because I think that's uh, very important in the fire service right now. No, that was, man, that was outstanding input. I really appreciate it. Like, I was just writing some notes about stuff you were saying there. One, it was Adam Grant, Think Again. Got that right? Just so for the group. Yeah, yeah, that's his book. One of his books. Um, you know, I, I think you're hitting it spot on. I, I one of the points that I want to reinforce from your, I, the fire service was late to get into the game about looking outside the fire service for advice. I feel right. Like, you know, almost all our leadership books that we have come from one source and that's like through ISTA, like that's our reading list. Right. But the military does a phenomenal job. Private industry does a phenomenal job. That feeling that I'm, I'm a vested part of this, right. That I belong. Right. And when you can create that feeling and 
I think that sometimes where this gets shot down early is that people like hear words like vulnerability or psychological safety. And they're like, what is going on? I will tell you that the minute I like walk through the door at rescue two, like my, you know, what's are hanging on the thing, just like everybody else. Like I'm just as much of a punching bag, right? Like if I walk through the door and I'm on special duty and somebody doesn't thank me uh, or congratulate me on making extra money today, like it's still a rough place. Like you can have both of them. It's just about balance, right? Like I really love that part of the fire service, but there's also this other part, but Jim McNamara talks about, like with you, you talked about, you have all these senior members in your house and you can implement new ideas, but sometimes like some of these ideas, the best way to do it, he says, is just pepper them in, like almost do it in a way that they don't know. Like, you, you know, I probably won't walk into the kitchen next day and go, Hey, guys, we're just going to go through and everybody's going to read a chapter of emergency mind. They'd be like, okay, cat, that's like, that's cute. Like we tolerate you, but like, that's enough. Right. So it's just the way we get to that point. So thank you very much for sharing. If nobody else has any other questions and I want to be, we're going to wrap up here in 15 minutes. I want to be responsible of your time. Um, and I skipped this slide before. So one day I was doodling at my desk and I wrote this page. It still hangs in the office. And at the time, I was just kind of like flushing out some of my thoughts. But I'm really was kind of thinking about like, where are we trying to get to? And this piece of paper, it just says, what are the spectrums and qualities of our highest performers? So like, be specific, like, you know, like all of you can think of the guy in your company, the person on your fire in the fire department, who you're like, that's a person I would like to emulate, or that's a person who has the skill set that I would like to develop in other people. Like be specific about those qualities, what those are. Try to develop trainings. To, to, can we develop trainings or an environment um, that fulfills those things, right? The train for certainty educate. You know, what faces, what challenges do we have to implementing that? You know, members coming to us with X experience could be one. And the answer can't just be to train longer, harder with less, more experience. So I kind of like doodle this thing out. And then I'm like a really big believer in the senior man concept. So I have Craig Perillo, Josh Hinzenkamp, and Logan Deacher, my senior men on each of the shifts. And I brought them all in and I just handed them this piece of paper. And I was like, oh, they'll like just start banging these things off. And what I found is like they kind of struggled with to put it to words. And then I gave it to all my lieutenants and they kind of struggled with put it to words. And finally, we dug down on it, but we kind of like started to come up with a list. And it was it was just an interesting process for me that sometimes it's kind of hard to quantify what we find a value in our highest performers. Um, but then once you identify those things, are those things teachable? You know, is it, are they skills? Can we, can we help other people progress faster? So just food for thought. Let me ask you this. So, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not promoted yet. I'm just an actor, but we all have had an officer that, clearly makes uh, some questionable decisions and as long as it doesn't you know affect your safety or your crew's safety how would you recommend going about talking to an officer that that is like that that displays those traits yeah how would you how would you recommend going about that because I know I'm sure we've all had them well i I guess I'm a firm believer that like most things or a lot of things can be solved over coffee. So 
I would probably approach him when he's alone, right? Because probably somebody like that, part of their problem is probably already insecurity of some sort. So right. like challenging him at the kitchen table in front of everybody else probably is like a no, no starter. So I'd try to find a time like where I could go and talk to him. And then really to start out, like, like you can word things, you can be asking the same question, but word it two different ways and have a totally different outcome, right? One, I'm all, right. you know, one, I'm, I'm like deflating you the, or not, you're like having you lower your defenses, but I could just change one word. And what I'm actually doing is you're just actually shutting me out before the conversation starts. So really trying to think through and picking my words correctly. And then just coming in and just like, just trying to start an open conversation. Now, I know that seems like, maybe that seems really basic. It's not hitting your answer. I guess what I will tell you is I don't always think there's an answer to that person. Like, I don't always think that like, you're going to go in there and change that person. Like, I've just had too many experiences where I've like taken multiple cracks at it and I still walk away and I'm like, that person's still making the same decisions. And because they don't like, they don't want to change. I don't like to write people off, but sometimes I'm just kind of like, you know, you have to, like, you have to have skin in the game. You have to pick up the ball here somewhere. You have to be a participant in it. Like I can't just continue to beat you over the head with a hammer. I don't know. Maybe just being, not putting them on the defensive, having the respect for them to approach them in private would all be, be good ways to start at least. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, cause we're the, we're, leaning the fire service i would i feel like is is leaning more towards empowering your people um and when you have an uh, an officer a leader that does not do that it's kind of like all right we're we're not making we're not moving forward here so you know i'm just trying to figure out how we move forward with a with an officer like that yeah you know and everything has its time and its place right like i came on like you know, 24 years ago, sometimes sounds like a long time to me, but like in the fire service, it's like nothing. Right. And like, it was like, like you, I didn't talk like my battalion chief, when he came to my quarters, the first I answered the door and I said, Oh, good morning, sir. I'm Brian McNulty. He goes, you don't think I know who you are. And he goes, the next time I want you to talk to me is it the next time I'm going to talk to you is after you're off probation, unless you did something wrong. So try not to have me talk to you until after probation. Like that was it. And he was a man of his word. 365 days later, he came and he talked to me. But so, and I, and I do think there's a place, some, I do think there's some place for that in the fire service. Like, I think maybe sometimes we're pushing it a little too like friendly in the wrong direction, but I think the Marines sum it up well. And I didn't serve in the service for those of you in the group, my, my thanks. Um, but the Marines, if you guys didn't read war fighting yet, that book is like power packed with information. And one of the things they talk about in there is, that it is the subordinate's duty, like not like if it's a nicety, like the duty to offer advice to their superior. But at the same time, once there's a stated decision made, that if he doesn't go with what you want, that you're following him, right? That like you have now switched like, okay, he didn't take my idea. Ship is going in a different direction. I'm 100% on board with that. Maybe some down the, down the road, I'll come to him with a different argument. But my senior men know they have the right. Everybody in the company knows they have the right to come into my office at any time and talk to me. They do do me the favor of coming to me outside of the group. They, they don't challenge me in front of the group. They also, I think, have the understanding 
that they're not always going to walk away a winner in that conversation. I mean, that's the way life is, right? I always ask for 100%. I always don't get 100%. So I don't know if that helps answer your question, but I definitely think of like how you approach is of utmost, of utmost importance. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.